Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. My name is Sonia Simone, and I was one of the founding partners of Copyblogger Media. Um, I've written something crazy like 1.5 or 6 million words of content. Um, I've led teams in person. I've led teams remotely. I've done a lot of content strategy. And these days, I mainly help entrepreneurs get their act together in terms of their digital offers. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Sonia. So you're hands down probably one of the most prolific content writers, strategists out there. Do you have like, I hate to even say your top favorite, but like maybe your top three favorite things you've ever written? Oh, wow. Things I've written. I do. I do have a lot of them. I like my own writing, which is kind of embarrassing, but you know, I do. I think for Evergreen, there's something that I wrote for Copyblogger called The Right Way to Think About Google. And I wrote that in 2014. I just reread it the other day. I'm like, yeah, I still stand by this <laughs> for, you know, a super volatile topic. So um, I liked that. And um, gosh, I have written a lot of stuff. I'll give you two. The other one, because I'm going to give you a silly one, which is long ago, we used to do a lot of April Fool's Day, like every year at Copyblogger, we would do an April Fool's Day post. And I did one about like our community closing because all my business partners were, you know, flying apart. And I based it on Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And it was like, I still cracked myself up. So for foolishness, for tomfoolery, I think that one's my favorite. That's awesome. Going, and we will link to both of these within the show notes, but going back to the one you wrote about how to think about writing for Google, what are some of the timeless things from within that post from someone who maybe is listening to this podcast and hasn't read that article yet? Um, that, you know, or just some of those timeless frameworks that you have within it. Yeah, I, I think my most important rule for Google, and, you know, we, it seems obvious, but we do forget it, is you have to be writing for your buyer. And if, if somebody tells you to do something to make the search engine happy, but it doesn't create a good experience for the buyer, that's bad advice. You know, I mean, and the thing I always say is, you know, Google algorithms do not have credit cards. They cannot buy your product. They cannot buy your service. Um, so that already gets you out of a whole world of like foolishness, like stuffing keywords. Now, no good SEO is going to tell you to stuff keywords today or honestly, in the last 20 years, but I still see people do it. So um, that's one of my big ones. You you write for your buyer and then, you know, you do what needs to be done for, for search engine rankings. And, you know, Google is explicitly looking for um, quality signals. They, they would like to rank good content. That is that is what they would like to do. I don't think they're saints. I don't think they're perfect, but that is what they're trying to do. And I think the best way to send quality signals is create quality work. Um, and the rest of it, I'm not going to say it takes care of itself because that would not be fair to my SEO brothers and sisters, but that is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of good SEO is good work. So I could not agree anymore. What are, you've been around in the industry since for a while, and mm -hmm. I've I think I mentioned this off the record, but like I like 
oh, a lot of what I learned about content marketing to reading copy blogger back in the day. What are some of the worst advice that you see floating around today in 2023 when it comes to content marketing and SEO? Um, worst advice, I would say, God, there's so many things that irritate me. Um, I think the worst, I, I'm not going to say it's advice. I'm going to say I'm seeing evidence of it is people create work that's so polished and it doesn't say anything. And I know this is what that drives you crazy as well. Like they put all, it's all frosting and no cake. You know, it's all, it's the graphics are amazing. The brand is totally on point. Um, you know, they've, they've perfected the polish, but there's no meat to it. And I really think that in, and I, I really like what you've been talking about with AI assisted, you know, content of all kinds, AI can give you very polished content, but it can't give you very deep thinking. It really can't. And I'd rather see the deep thinking. And even if it's a little rough around the edges, I kind of have a feeling that that may become um, prized that something's a little more rough because it's going to feel a little less like it was written by a chatbot. Yeah, absolutely. Since you kind of brought up AI and obviously you can't pretty much go anywhere on social media these days and not hear someone talking about AI tools or ChatGPT. What's your current take on it? Um, I'm, I don't have the patience to, to use it well, but I'm also a person who... You know, if you tell me, oh, I just need you to like produce 2,500 more words on this. I'm like, that's cool. Like I would not put an hour into doing something with AI that would cut that time in half. It just would not be interesting to me. So I come from a weird point of view, but um, I think you could probably use it for useful things. I don't see why you couldn't. I don't see why it wouldn't have any use. I think that's there's probably interesting things people can do with it. It's never going to give you anything really worth. It's it's never going to be funny. I mean, tell tell your ch favorite chatbot to write something funny, and then you will lose all of your insecurity around your ability to compete with the chatbots. It just it does what it does fine. It does what it does probably superbly. And if there's a part of your content like straightforward facts and figures, that might be a great use for it. But a lot of content is creating relationships with your, with your words, with your, you know, with, and that's whether it's a podcast, text, video, I don't care what it is. And um, a bot can only serve relationships. It's not going to do a good job of creating relationships. Yeah, that's such a good point. And to your point above where you're talking about, like, it's a lot of like a lot of content these days, particularly on corporate blogs, is all yeah. polished without much kind of ideas or kind of quality thinking behind it. What are some of the ways, and you've worked with, I mean, a writer yourself, but you've also worked with so many amazing writers. What are some of the things that you look for when it comes to someone who's just like a writer that just gets it in your eyes? Oh yeah, it's voice. It's, it's two things, it's voice. So that's when, you know, you read the first paragraph and you you just get this feeling of like intelligence, but not like pomposity. Um, you get you just there's a there's a certain kind of voice, that, and if I see a writer in the first paragraph has that voice, I'm like, okay, 
this is somebody I want to know more about. But then the second thing is your ability to stay on the topic. Because sometimes, like some writers have a brilliant, beautiful voice, but they resent being asked to, to stick to the point. Um, and, you know, for business writing, that ain't going to work. Like, you've got to write about what you're going to write about. And I'm all for, now I love an analogy and I love a metaphor and I love complexity and nuance, but if you're going to write about organic cotton t-shirts, you have to write about organic cotton t-shirts and not, you know, your childhood growing up in rural Alabama. Like, I'm sure that's fascinating, but let's, we got to stick to the t-shirts. Absolutely. That kind of reminds me of all of the like recipe blogs where you have the 10 page story before you actually get to the recipe yeah one page half page story great <laughs> yeah absolutely so shifting gears a little bit um going back to your time with copy blogger what were some of the things that you kind of put in place to keep that quality bar so insanely high with your, your content production yeah i have to <sighs> It really, I have to give credit to, I will say, quality, the quality of the writing was like truly one of our cornerstone values. And it, it was, I mean, if you put something on the blog that was not of high quality, like Brian Clark, who was the founder of Copy Blogger, would just, you know, he would send you these one word emails, like, really? <laughs> and you just want to like, you know, do something dire so there was a real, I mean, there was just, a, it was a value. It was a cornerstone value. So we only worked with people who held that value of quality above all. We had a really tight editorial process. And I will say Stephanie Flaxman, who is still the editor-in-chief at Copyblogger, she is just a stickler for process and quality. And she does not just throw stuff up there because she needs something to put up there. I mean, she really just... She has a real commitment to it, um, but she runs a tight ship. Like your, you know, your headline and your topic and your draft are in by X date and we go by a serious calendar. And if you blow your deadline, you know, we've all got a problem. The other kind of secret sneaky thing we used to do, and we had some drama at one point about it that I won't get too much into, but it was dramatic. But if you would blow, like as a guest poster, if you would blow your deadlines with Stephanie, we would just rewrite your post. It's like, well, okay, then you lost your, you lost your privilege to like, you know, have input about how this has turned out. Because we, we have things to publish and we don't just throw up stuff that doesn't suit the editorial voice or stuff that's not really polished to a high polish. So it just, it takes a lot of commitment. It takes a certain amount of talent. And then um, you've got to have a sound editorial process in place. You have to know what your editorial process looks like. You have to know what your editorial passes look like, what you're checking for. But that's um, editing. Uh, Stephanie has a, a YouTube channel on editing, and she's just, she's superb. She's superb on that, that very question. Got it. I have a couple of follow-on questions. What? did kind of the editorial team structure look like when it came to kind of ensuring that you guys kept those insanely high quality um, levels? Yeah. So the team structure, it did, it did, you know, um, fluctuate because I was with Copyblogger for a total of probably around 10 years. 
but it, it started with that quality driven founder in the form of Brian and then and then also in the form of of me when I came on as a founder of the of the new company the copy blogger became so that you know it started with that like you just knew that you didn't want to let Brian down because that would be no good but then um in terms of a team it was light I mean we had I was sort of I served as kind of a publisher so I ran, you know, editorial meetings where we talked about what do we want to promote? What do we want to talk about? I feel like we're going a little too far this direction. Let's bring the mix around a little more that way. Then we had our editor-in-chief. She really had the authority to do what needed to be done. So we had to have that role in place where we could just absolutely trust her judgment. And if she made a judgment call we didn't agree with, we trusted her judgment, you know, because these things are subjectives to some degree. And um, yeah, and then, you know, and then we had some other, we had a small group of regular writers. We had a lot of regular writers who were not employees. We had a couple who were employees. Um, so we would get together and just talk about what are our themes? What are our goals? What do we want to experiment with? What feels like we haven't had this in a while. Let's let's shake things up. Love it. What was, if you could like, you know, think through from back in the day to today, how would you describe your kind of philosophy towards leadership? Yeah, my my philosophy toward leadership, I mean, when I started managing people, I really had a hard time being the grown-up. I really had a hard time being that designated grown-up. Um, I had a hard time setting boundaries with team members. And and this was before, I would say before I came to Copyblogger, when I was still in corporate. So that, you know, that just, that does not go anywhere good. I learned a lot from a friend of mine. Her name is Annie Pratt. Um, she's actually written a book about leadership that's really good called The People Part. But she helped me understand that you can set boundaries and set vision and set direction without being a jerk. You know, you can respect people. You can respect who they are as human beings. You can treat them with respect. But you also have to know where those bright lines are, those lines in the sand. And then just you got to let people know where they are. I mean, you can't get mad at a team member for crossing a line that you never let them know is there. So she really helped me understand what setting healthy boundaries looked like. And it definitely was not being a tyrant. It was about clarity and clarifying your vision. Um, and the other thing that gets people really in trouble, if you get like especially founder-driven organizations, you think your employees think like you, but you're a founder. So you are by definition, sort of a whack job. Right? It's like founders are bananas in all different kinds of ways. And employees don't think like founders most of the time. So sometimes, you know, we make assumptions about, about the ownership people take of their roles. And those assumptions are not fair. Those are assumptions are based on, our point of view. So you have to really um, spend a lot of time as a good coach, right? And a good coach listens, you know, probably twice as much as they talk and really find out where people are coming from so you can make sure that you're really being clear and not just um, assuming people are going to just get what you want because that's never going to work. It's never, ever going to work. Yeah, I love that so much. Um so you're kind of talking, you said something really interesting there where it's like, you know, making sure that like, you know, employees don't think like founders and yeah. 
we as founders, founders, founders right here, um, do you have different views on certain things? How do you, how did you learn to kind of hold employees and even contractors and freelancers accountable while still, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, they don't necessarily think the same way you do as a founder? Yeah, I think it's, it's a tricky area because the, the tenants, it's the tendency becomes when an employee, you feel like they've let you down. The tendency is you start to micromanage, which is terrible for everybody. It doesn't work for anybody. So, you know, if you're not getting what you need out of an employee, you have to start with yourself. You have to start with what did I actually communicate? Like, let me look at that email. Let me look at that task in Asana. And where was the gap? Here's what I thought I was asking for. And here's what I got. And then you have to, you know, sometimes you do have to have a difficult conversation, but you have to recognize that part of that difficulty in that conversation may be that you screwed this communication up. That that can be <laughs> that can be a thing. So yeah, I mean, if you're not getting what you need, you have to sit down with this person and say, here's what I was looking for, and here's where what we got is not matching. So talk to me about like how you are framing that um it has to be it has to be a conversation so yeah i mean and you do have to hire for you know you have to hire people who are suited to the role right if you're going to bring on somebody who's really not a writer and you've never seen any evidence that they're a writer and then you ask them to write some content and it's not very good well you know yeah Like, I don't know where you magically thought that ability was going to come from. I see this a lot in organizations. They've got somebody who's a frontline junior person. And then it's like, well, why don't you write some some blog copy? Why don't you do some social media content? Does that person know how to do that? You know? And that's part of that arrogance of the founder is, well, everybody knows how to do that. And that's not true. That's such a great point. Something you said there for a second, which is like, it's really obviously very easy to just kind of come in and either take over when someone kind of lets you down or to start micromanaging the entire project or an entire task. What are some of the ways in your experience that, you know, when you start to see yourself wanting to micromanage someone to kind of self-correct? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a really important question for all of us to ask ourselves. I mean, part of it is just, is just knowing that that's probably going to be your impulse. If you're very good at what you do, and then you bring somebody on to do some portion of that, you know, you're going to have that impulse to say, it's just faster for me to do it myself. Um, And almost every founder I've ever known does that. So you've got to kind of know that that's going to come up. Another thing is you, it's critical to let your people know have the conversation explicitly and say, you know, sometimes I get in a hurry. I feel like I should just do it myself. I start to micromanage. I would like you to let me know when you see me doing that. (laughs) You know, like have a safe word, right? It's like, when you see me doing that, please say, uh, you're kind of doing that peanut butter and jelly sandwich thing or whatever your word is, right? And you have to make it safe for that person to do that. People will tell you when you are stepping over their boundaries if they have permission and they believe you. Um, And do it, you know, that's why work on small projects first. 
don't bring somebody brand new in. Do not bring in some hotshot from outside the company to take over a massive role in your organization because you don't know how that person works. You don't what, don't know what their assumptions are. You don't really know how great they are. Work on small projects first. If you want to bring that hotshot in, bring them in on a contract, bring them in on a project that's got guardrails around it. See how it goes. But yeah, micromanaging, people will tell you if you are making them feel like crap, but they have to feel safe to tell you. And that's that's part of your work as a leader is to make sure people feel safe. If peop- If your people don't feel safe telling you we are going in the wrong direction, you will drive yourself right off the cliff every time, every time. It's one of the most cornerstone jobs of a leader, in my opinion, is to make people feel safe to tell you when you're full of crap. Yeah, I love that. What are some of the ways that you've like uh, empowered team members that like let them know, hey, it's safe to come, you know, share this maybe, you know, hard feedback to get? Like, yeah, it, it's hard and it's, it's, it's difficult for me, for sure. Um, something I would run into at Copyblogger is people would be like, like our staff would be intimidated by me. And I'd be like, I find that bizarre. <laughs> I really feel like I'm not intimidating. So I, that was, you know, that was always like, okay, that's interesting. I think that what I would strive to do, and I, I hope, I hope I did it well. I hope I do it well still is to ask uh, try and ask more questions. Try and ask more questions about, you know, here's how I see it. What do you think? This seems like, I don't know, this, I, I, from my point of view, I think this would work better if we did this. What do you think? Do you think that's, do you think that's sound? My friend Annie, who I mentioned, she talks a lot about this kind of tentative language. And female women in business are taught don't do that, right? Don't be tentative. Don't, don't, don't always ask people, am I being clear? Do you know what I mean? And I think that's good advice when you're dealing with like sort of people who are above you in the hierarchy. But when you're talking to team, use that tentative tone of voice, be open up a space to say, this is what I think. Do you, how does that feel to you? Does that feel off base? Do you think that do you have, you know, is there something I'm missing? Asking a lot of questions and keeping it tentative and keeping it open is, it's hard for us to believe because we're all so brilliant, right? Us founders are so, so smart. And it's hard for us to remember that our team are also very smart and they might have an idea that's better than ours. And it would probably be worthwhile asking them. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to something you said earlier about kind of setting boundaries and how you mentioned earlier in your career, you were really struggled with that. What were some of the like, you know, ways that helped you get past that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I think, well, actually, I'll tell you a funny way, which is I, I, I left corporate, I started my own thing. Um, That was great, very stressful, but it was very good. And then over time, I started working with Copyblogger, and we eventually founded a new company, and I had four male business partners. And that, I will say, as a woman working with four male business partners, there is a certain trial by fire <laughs> where you have to, like, speak up or just get, you know, flattened. <laughs> so 
um, that was good. You know, that was good for me. But I will also say that, you know, those four gentlemen were good about making room for that and about, you know, they didn't always, they weren't always happy when I would sort of say, all right, I have to like blow a whistle here. I think this is, I think we're doing something really stupid. And, you know, in the moment, they might not have been very happy with it, but then it always came back and said, okay, yeah, thanks for, you know, that's, that's actually worth thinking about. Thank you for bringing that up. So some of it was trial by fire. Some of it was, some of it also was working in a mastermind, like being part of a mastermind with people. I think that's, if you can make it happen, I think that's a wonderful way to get your peers and people you respect to show you a mirror and say, you're actually a badass. You're actually great. Like you have really good ideas and they're important and they're valuable. And that, that helped me a lot. And it's such a good point. It's kind of come up a little bit in, in this conversation so far, but I wanted to dive a little bit more into this, which is obviously as founders, you, we think differently than especially junior or mid-level employees. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously you mentioned it and I will be the first one admit as well. Like we're not perfect either. Um, what are some of the ways that like, you know, you can like embrace, I guess you usually say like self-awareness and figure out, you know, what those flaws are and how to like work on those in a ways that are effective without kind of sabotaging the company or sabotaging the team. Yeah, that's, that's such a good tension or a dynamic um, because you have to protect your confidence, right? Um, and that's not my phrase, but I really believe in it. As a founder, as a leader, you have to protect your confidence. So you can't go around sort of second guessing everything you do because that's not useful either. I think that it's just important to understand that business is a lot of business is around self-work and a lot of what gives us those recurring problems in business, the things that come up again and again and again, and you fire that person and you hire a new person and the problem is still there. It's because there's some kind of component of self-work you haven't done. And so that's, you know, that's one of those big questions. I mean, you can have some tactical things. It depends on what you do. If you steamroll people, then tactically, you know, count to 10 before you weigh in with your hot take. Um, get some feedback on your tone of voice. It might be therapy. It might be coaching. Um, I do think, you know, we call it self-work, right? We call it working on ourselves, but I don't think we can do it by ourselves. I think we need whoever that might be. And it's, it's a lot of times it's a team, right? It's like, you've got your, you've got your peers. That might be your mastermind. You've got maybe a coach who's kind of giving, going to give you direction, hold you accountable. You might have therapist to work through some deeper stuff. You might have business partners. I mean, like it takes a village <laughs> to run a company um, and to run yourself. So I think, think about who, who could you get into your circle who would help you work on this um, this issue? Yeah, that's such good advice. And I always like to kind of say that like starting a business for myself was probably the best thing you could possibly, I could have done for like personal development. Yeah. If you could go back to when you first started managing anyone, what's one piece of advice you would tell yourself? Uh, you're not doing them a favor by just letting them uh, run around like, you know, sugar crazed toddlers. Like, 
it's it's better for them to set the boundaries and um and be clear about it i love that um what's some of the ways that you've been able to give let's say like have difficult conversations or give critical feedback that maybe somebody doesn't want to hear uh to a director for it yeah that's um trying to think of a time when I've actually, I've done it badly a bunch of times. Um, I think, um, I think the best conversations I've had around those stick to the goals we're trying, the goals and the vision we're trying to reach. If it's really a question of like, you have a faulty character then the conversation needs to be like, here's your severance package. Like if it's really like this person is like, they're mean to their colleagues or they're, you know, they're just nasty to be around. I mean, if it's, if it's a character flaw, you cannot, you cannot manage that. You have to just replace that person as quickly as possible. And I have, you know, I've had to do that, which is kind of, I mean, your whole, the whole rest of your team breathes a sigh of relief. But if this person has a good character, and they mean well, then the best conversations I've had focus on the business vision and goal. And they start with, I think I see where you were going with this, but from my position, I don't feel like that lines up with where we're going. So I need this to be clearer, shorter, longer, et cetera. And, uh, you know, a person, most people, most people will do a good job if, if, if you expect a good job of them and the people who won't never will. So there's nothing you can say or do. You just gotta, you know, people who are, you know, just, they just don't care or they just, they're mad at the company and they're mad at whatever. And they have a bad attitude. I, I don't know. I've never managed to turn that around. Maybe some, there's some magic person who can, but I've, I've never been able to turn around an employee who just really doesn't have a good attitude. They're not trying hard or they're, um, you know, or they're doing some things like the, the ones who they grab hold of every corner of their role and they won't let any, they won't share anything. I, you know, yeah. My best conversation with them is thanks. Bye. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned something kind of before you started talking about this, where, uh, you've done it, like you've given like feedback poorly in a few scenarios. Would you maybe be willing to open up about, you know, some of the mistakes you've made when it came to having those difficult conversations? Yeah, I've had conversations, you know, and writers, so managing writers is a very special thing anyway, because writers are a little bit, you know, unusual. But yeah, I mean, in my corporate days, I would let people get away with you know, like being disrespectful of other employees or of just writing material that was not aligned with the company because they felt like they wanted to be creative with it. Like, you know, they had some ambition to be whatever, a, you know, a screenwriter or they wanted to tell a more compelling story. And it's like, and I, I would, I thought I was empathizing with them, but what I was doing was enabling them to dig the hole deeper on their lack of good fit with the organization. So I was like kind of trying to be, you know, like we sort of say, I was trying to be their friend. And I, 
I don't love that because I don't love that whole school of management that's like, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to, you know, like, well, then what are you here to do? Like, you know, be my enemy. I mean, that's what it, that's what it oftentimes seems like it's on the other side of that statement. So, yeah, I think I thought I was sort of empathizing with people or, you know, like I thought they produced good work, but it really was not aligned with the organization. And at that point, I don't know, I was just like too young or too insecure or too something to say, no, I like, I love it. It's great, but it doesn't fit. And you know, it doesn't fit. So, you know, let's, let's like, let's dial it back. I think this is a really interesting piece. You should go see if you could sell it to a magazine, but it's not a, it's not a good piece for this. You know, it doesn't serve this business purpose, but that, that was me being young in business too. I mean, I don't know if I really was as aware of the business drivers as I could have been, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other tips you have when it came, when it comes to managing writers and or editors as well? Yeah, a a big one. And I think it's very pertinent to this, you know, increasingly remote or hybrid work environment, which is you have to manage to output. You, you, absolutely must get out of this idea that, you know, if your writer took 17 minutes to write this and they got paid for a week of work, you need to be looking at what does the work look like? Does this work meet the standards? Is it of high quality? Is it well-written? Does it have a good voice? Does it reflect intelligence? Is it aligned with the business goal? You need to keep your management of your creative people. And I really feel like almost all people, you need to keep it focused on the results of the work and the quality and the fitness for the organization. And because a lot of writers, especially, you know, part of the process is a lot of time spent like, wandering around and taking walks and, you know, watching whatever stupidity on YouTube. And I mean, there is just a certain amount of what looks like wasting time that writers just do. And different writers are different. So if you think, well, I, I managed this writer and that was their process, that's the process for writers. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and it doesn't work that way for, for, you know, your graphic creative team. It doesn't work that way for a lot of people in your organization. So unless we're talking about, you know, literally like a support position where I need to have you available on the phone for X number of hours because I need coverage, obviously, then you're going to manage a certain amount to how much time you spent logged into the system. But get out of that mindset of, well, if I'm not there to watch them all day, they're just going to goof off all day. Fine. If they goof off all day and they're producing excellent work, that's it. You're done. That's great. You have a good employee. Congratulations. Yeah, that is such a great point Um, when it comes to managing for results and output instead of what I like to call button seat time. Yeah. Before we wrap up, what is the most exciting thing that you're up to these days? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I have to a large degree shifted some gears since I wrapped up with Copyblogger. I loved my time with Copyblogger, but I also wrote like a crazy person and burned myself out a little bit. These days, I am really excited about working 
pretty closely one-on-one -on -one or in kind of a mastermind style group with business owners um, on, you know, the things that are making their businesses not work well, usually not getting paid enough revenue. Um, but, but also sometimes like not being able to manage themselves or getting overwhelmed, getting overwhelmed, especially, you know, honestly, post COVID, I think we've all, we're all suffering from like long overwhelm disease. So yeah, working one-on-one, -on -one, I am so excited after working one to many for a decade to really work closely with people one-on-one. -on -one. Can you maybe speak a little bit more to how to help people, how you're helping, you know, founders and content businesses uh, feel less overwhelmed? Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about like, how do we work on ourselves and that key being other people. Um, I think my strengths as a coach, if I can say that, are, first of all, I am your champion. You know, I mean, I remember the value that I took from somebody holding up a mirror and saying, actually, you're kind of great. And so that's always the cornerstone of how I work with people is let's really play to your strengths and figure out what your strengths are. Most people don't see their own strengths very well. And then the other thing is, okay, what are the problems that keep coming up? You know, what, what are you seeing over and over again? There's probably something underlying that, that we can correct for. And maybe that's, you get, a, you get somebody on your team to help out, or maybe it's, you see it differently and you start to do it in a more productive way. So it is, you know, it's different for different people, but um, I'm really into strengths first and then, um, you know, compete on your strengths and betray your weaknesses, which is a, that's a motto from, from, from athletics and strength training. So I could talk about like managing writers and editors for, hours um, <laughs> but I want to ask a couple of lightning round questions if you could have coffee with any historical figure who would you choose and why Harriet Tubman because I cannot imagine being that brave I love it and secondly you've kind of hinted at this a little bit but I'm going to ask this in a different way which is what's one book you'd recommend that anyone well, from the new manager to a founder should read when it comes to leading a team? Um, at this point, my absolute first recommendation would be The People Part by Annie Hyman Pratt. Um, there is also a really good old book about managing software engineers called Peopleware. And I, I think that's got really good ideas. It's, um, it's maybe a little old fashioned, but it has a lot of very evergreen kind of insights. Love it. It's been really great having you on the Remote Work Pride podcast, Sonia. Where can listeners find you online? Yes, please come find me online. If you want to talk, like chat and connect, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Sonia Simone. Look for the one in the fedora hat. Creativefierce.com is my rather new website that I have put together for content people, writers, um, with a little bit of an attitude. It's got some attitude, it's got some sass and a lot of strategy. So um, either of those is a great place to start. I love it. Thank you again. Well, thank you. This was fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. 
please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.